If you're anything like me, you spent your childhood assuming that one day you'd meet your Prince Charming. You'd get married, you'd have a nice house in the suburbs, a dog, a career, and a couple of kids. It never crossed your mind that Prince Charming wouldn't come along, or that tragically you'd lose him before his time, or that your marriage wouldn't work out, or even that your biological clock would have other ideas. Or maybe you never really wanted that sort of happily ever after. Maybe you never wanted a man, but you did know you always wanted children. We're living in an age where for the first time, women can embrace motherhood on their own terms. They no longer have to put their lives on hold waiting for the right man, or settling for someone who they know isn't right for them, just so they can become a mother. More women than ever before are embarking on the journey to become what's known as a solo mother by choice. And while for a lot of us it doesn't feel like a choice, but more a necessity, the bottom line is there are now options for you to be able to fulfill your dreams of motherhood if the traditional route isn't playing out as expected. The No Need for Prince Charming podcast will share stories of Australian women who have successfully become solo mothers by choice. They each have a unique story as to why they decided to pursue motherhood in this way and the journey they had to go through to make this dream a reality. The hope is that by sharing these stories, you'll have the knowledge and the confidence to embark on this amazing journey yourself if you determine it's the right one for you. In the words of Walt Disney, all of our dreams can come true if we have the courage to pursue them. All you need is faith, trust, and a little bit of pixie dust. On today's episode, I'm speaking with Sarah. Sarah lives in Melbourne and went through quite the journey to get her gorgeous 15-month-old son, Noah. Welcome to the podcast today, Sarah. I would love to start by understanding what led you to make the decision to become a solo mum by choice. Um, thank you for having me, firstly. I'm very excited to have my go to share my story after listening to so many other stories on the podcast. Um, so I think... I mean, like a lot of other people, I had always knew that I wanted to be a mum. Mm-hmm. Always. I just always assumed that I would do what everyone else does and I would grow up and I would meet someone and we would have a child and a family and travel the world and, you know, do all of that, have the white picket fence. But it just didn't happen for me. Well, it hasn't happened yet, shall we say. Mm-hmm. Um, Love that. So I would, but you know what, and if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. Like life's pretty damn good. And I'll explain why, I suppose. <laughs> um, so yeah, I always knew I wanted to be a mum. And when I sort of, I was overseas for about nine years and just assumed that I'd probably meet someone when I was traveling and working abroad and, you know, would come home and start my life. Um, mm-hmm. as I would say. And when I came home, um, I was, gosh, about 33. And it ha- I was single, hadn't happened, sort of hit the online dating scene pretty hard to try my damnedest to make it happen. Yeah. Um, and it just didn't. And I don't know if I was picky or if I just had really high standards or which there's nothing wrong with either of those things either, I don't think. Yeah, it just didn't happen for me. So um, I was thinking I probably should freeze my eggs just to, uh, you know, have just buy myself some time because, you know, it was insurance policy. Yeah, it happens for everyone. Surely it will happen for me. Um, And I went along to an egg freezing information session um, at one of the IVF clinics in Melbourne. And in that information session, um, they also talked about the donor program. So it was a little bit of both. And I'd never sort of considered like the donor program side of things before. Like I'd always thought like, oh, if I don't meet someone, then I would definitely have a child on my own. Like that wasn't, but I'd sort of never considered the, I guess, like the actual technicalities of what that was. I looked into adoption years and years ago, um, just as a, I was curious and I thought like, didn't meet someone and have a family that way that perhaps I could adopt and then the laws here in Australia and in Victoria is in particular for single women to adopt it's pretty much impossible so um that sort of that plan sort of had gone by the by years previously and at this information session one of the fertility specialists that was running it they did a Q&A at the end and so the girlfriend that I had um, taken along with me we sort of hung around and had a quick chat to the um, fertility specialist. And she sort of just said, well, you know, you're looking at freezing your eggs. How old are you? And I was like, oh, well, I'm, I'm 34. And she said, look, to be honest, if you were 24, I'd say brilliant, freeze those eggs. But, you know, at your age, the you know success rates for egg freezing, 
they're not great. So she said, you're almost better off. Like it's expensive, it's invasive. She And I sort of I appreciated that advice um, because, you know, you don't want to do it for it to be a waste if that. Okay. So she sort of said, why don't you, have you ever considered the donor program and going it alone? And that the best advice she could give me would be to give myself a cutoff date of, you know, if I haven't met someone by a certain time to, you know, really look at going, you know, down the donor um, solo parent route. And so sort of went away and had a big think about that and um, sort of learned more about it, went to another session at a different Melbourne IVF clinic that was about the donor program um, and sort of had all of that information there um, and sort of, you know, was like, you know what, that's, you know, to freeze my eggs, I think at the time was about $10,000 around. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then you've sort of got the ongoing storage and there's obviously no guarantees of it, of you even getting enough eggs or those eggs defrosting and being viable and all of that sort of stuff. So I went, all right, I'm going to give myself a cutoff. If I haven't met someone by 36, this is what I'm going to do. And felt really good about that decision did you um, think you were going to meet someone by the time you're 36 though? I tried. I really did try, but I think because I, yeah, I had that in the back of my mind. Perhaps at 34, I probably should have just done it. It probably would have been a lot easier. Um, but- I know for me, there was definitely, I'm going to have this by this time and this is my backup plan and then hoped I never had to use it. And my head thought was I was going to meet someone and just never did. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's funny, isn't it? Like, I think when you put ages on things, I've always hated the idea of having by this date, like by the time I'm 30, I'll be married. By the time I'm 32, I'll have a child because I think you just, it's almost like a New Year's resolution. You're setting yourself up for failure by having a cutoff. But this sort of felt different. It was almost like having that cutoff of pivoting at that moment. Um, And, yeah, so hit 36 after an unsuccessful online you know, attempt of finding someone. But it's how can you meet someone to sort of, I guess, to form a relationship with when you're meeting them with the intention of could I have a child with this person? Like you're sort of interviewing potential fathers for your children rather than uh, like getting to know them to date them as a boyfriend into a partner to a husband. You put so much pressure on so early, don't you? And, you sort of think, and even okay, if you don't put it on them, it's on you because yes. is this person good enough or am I wasting my time and need to find someone else? Yeah. Exactly. And then like you think, okay, well, I've met you. What, do you give it six months and then what would we, we'd know we were serious, we'd be moving in together, we'd be getting married, we'd be trying, that would put me at, say, 35 and a half. Like, it was just too much pressure. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and so I turned 36 and sort of had said, okay, this is what I'm going to do and, I think I'd reconciled to myself that if I didn't, if I didn't find a partner or if I, and I still think this way, if I don't find that partner, I can live with that. But if I didn't become a mother, that's not something that I was willing to accept. So I think that was my bottom line was that I could cope with the idea of not having the the husband, but I couldn't cope with the idea of not having the child. So, um, yeah, off I went to the GP and spoke to her and got my AMH levels done, which I think is almost like the rite of passage for <laughs> anyone considering this. And um, my AMH levels are actually low for my age. And she just sort of said, look, Sarah, if you're ready to do this, like if you're, instead of saying, oh, in six months' time I'm going to try, she's like, if you're ready, just do it sooner rather than later. Your levels are low. It could be difficult, you know, so you know, you need to, I guess, next step is you need the referral for a fertility specialist. So I sort of had done a lot of research um, and had, you know, looked at different clinics and tried to find out about wait times at that point, because my doctor had sort of said, sometimes it takes a while to get into a fertility specialist. And then there's obviously like the wait times to get onto the donor program. So um, my a lot of my decision making around that time of which clinic to go through and which fertility specialist to go to was based on the wait times and things like that so I wanted a specialist that had um sort of worked with solo mums before um and who was hopefully kind of close to where I lived um and a clinic that didn't have a huge wait list so um, did you just ring up the clinics to find this information or how did you do that research 
So I did, I contacted, um, so the main two in Melbourne, Monash IVF and Melbourne IVF, both had things on their websites, like a form that you could fill out with questions and then like someone would get back to you. Yeah. Um, and I did that. And that was actually really helpful. Um, sort of they got in contact with me, I guess like their admin teams, which they probably get a lot of people inquiring about mm. stuff, about costs and wait lists and stuff like that um, and spoke to some people there. Um, Monash actually have a nurse call that you can have for free to like chat to one of the IVF nurses, which that was really helpful too, to get some information. And they, she knew a lot about the wait times and stuff for their clinic. Um, yeah. I ended up with Melbourne IVF purely because their, the waiting list for the donor program was like, there wasn't a wait list at that point. Whereas Monash, there was a six month wait list. So I was like, okay, well, that makes a decision for me. Six months when you're ready to go, that, that seems yeah, exactly. to doesn't it? Yeah. Especially when they've said your numbers are low, you're getting older. Yeah. And so um, so yeah, so got and I and I then contacted Melbourne IVF and I said, right, I need a fertility specialist. I live in the southeast suburbs of Melbourne. I need someone who can you recommend someone who has worked with um single women before and you know who isn't who perhaps has like a practice this side of town. And they then got back and said, oh, you know, this doctor, um, you know, would be fine and they have, they, you know, we can get you in. And I said, perfect. So I got the referral and off I went to see her. Um, so, and she turned out to be lovely. So I was pretty lucky in that respect. Um, yeah, so I was at this point, um, I had just turned 37. So um, even though my cutoff was 36, it just getting all of that stuff sort of in the research and actually doing it. I think it was a big step to actually, it's one thing to say in your mind, I'm going to do this at 36, but there's a lot to put in, like there's a lot of like groundwork to do. And I didn't, I don't think I realised that until I got to 36. So, um, And psychologically, if you'd done it before 36, then you're kind of stepping away from your goal a bit as well. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, but yeah, so I was 37 and um, saw the fertility specialist and she sent me for a bunch of different tests just to, you know, make sure everything was ship shape and ready to go and there wasn't going to be hopefully any issues. Um, and I had a genetic screening done for myself just mm-hmm. so I had all the information um, about like if I was a carrier for any um, genetic conditions or anything like that. And um that, that was actually really helpful because then when it came to selecting my donor, I was able to sort of go in with all the information rather than sort of having to then wait and go and get another blood test or anything like that. So um, had all the counselling sessions, which they're mandatory, but I think it's, I know a lot of people say like, oh, couples don't have to go through this mandatory counselling, you know, is it fair? But I actually found it really helpful. Oh, it I was, found it so helpful. And so, helpful. Yeah. so it was just really good to, you know, have questions raised that I might not have thought of. And it made me just feel really confident in myself and the decisions that I was making that, yeah, it was the right, you know, like decision for me. So, um, yeah, had all that done and then chose my donor. Um, and then I had, I got started um, in January of 2020. So that was, I was 37. And, and what did you do to choose your donor? Oh, so I'm the most indecisive person you'll probably ever meet. And (laughs) I just overthink everything. And so even though the list wasn't super long, it was um, I went through that list with a fine tooth comb and ended up printing everything off. And I had all these different colored um, post-it notes that I would put on different um, on different profiles. And um, one of the things that so with the with Melbourne IVF with the donor um, profiles that if there's anything that for example if the donor is a carrier of a genetic condition or if they're over a certain age you have to sign a waiver saying okay. that you understand that there's like a risk involved in using that donor and speak when I was um, I talked to my mum a lot about the decisions and that sort of stuff and one of the things she was very much about like all about health which. I mean, like, understandably, it was my main focus too. But she was like, if you have to sign a don- uh, a waiver, perhaps that donor's not for you. You know, like, you've got an opportunity here to make sure that it's, you know, your future child's going to have, like, you know, to make sure that their health is going to be, you know, the first and foremost type of thing. So, um, yeah, anything that I had to sign a waiver for, I sort of put to the side. 
Um, and yeah, I just mainly looked at health. So it ended up with maybe there was, I think, two that I quite liked. And so I did IUI to start with. So um, I knew that if I went to IVF, I would have to choose a different donor. Um, And so the IUI donors, and I ended up with these two that I really liked. And I was just like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And I even, this is going to sound ridiculous, but it's quite funny. I even at one point, so I've got a a giant ginger cat called Hamish who, (laughs) You know, he he was listening to a lot of these out loud decisions that I was making during this time. And I actually at one point put both donor profiles down in the room and was like, which one are you going to go to, Hamish? Select the donor for me. Um, work? <laughs> no, well, I did two rounds of IUI and they both did not work. So <laughs> Hamish, you failed me. Yes, so Hamish was not consulted the next time I had to choose a donor. <laughs> but um how good a story would that be to tell your future child, though? Yeah. Your well, that's what I thought. I got cat. a video of it and everything. So, because I, I thought, like, oh, this is going to work first time for sure. I was so confident it was going to work first time. And I was, yeah, had this little video and everything that I thought, what a story. But um, yeah, unfortunately, the story was a bit more um, involved than I first imagined it was going to be. And how did you handle that if you had gone into it assuming that it was going to work the first time? Was it a bit of a hit when it didn't work or? Yeah, I think I was sort of knocked for six when it didn't work. So I'm eternally positive. I'm I'm an optimist. Glass is always half full. And which I think because of that, when things, I think I can get knocked for six sometimes because I'm so sure that something is good or is going to happen or something. But it's okay. I figure it's worth looking at it with rose-coloured glasses in the hope that, I think, yeah, for me, looking at it the other way, it's not good for my mental health. Yeah. Like I need to sort of, I need to be positive and hopeful that it's going to work. Um, But no, it did knock me for six the first time. And then when the second time it didn't work, it was, yeah, really knocked me. But it was just one of those things at that point, I was like on the journey. So I was on the train. I wasn't getting off that train until I was pregnant and had that child in my arms. So I was sort of in at that point. Did the clinic give you good support when the, the rounds didn't work? Yeah, so when the IUIs didn't work, um, I then had to go off for more counselling. So um, they sort of had mandatory counselling that before you went on to IVF, just because the legalities of IVF were very were a bit different to the IUI um, from the donor's perspective. So any oh. embryos that get created, um, even though, like, they're your embryos, there's just certain things that... Um, that are different compared to if it's a couple that have made their embryos. So um, if the, and I think the laws have actually changed around some of these now, actually, but I knew that at the time where I was going through, so if the donor had suddenly withdrew his consent from the donor program and there were embryos that had been made, then those embryos would be destroyed. Mm-hmm. Um, and if the donor passed away, um, the same would happen. But I think the law around that now has changed um, but they needed to sort of go through all of that and there was yeah, that sort of side of things that you just never would have known had of you not been in that situation. So, um, but again, the counselling was super helpful because it sort of made you stop and sort of almost steal yourself for the next part, what was to come. Um, so I found that really helpful. Um, and right at that moment, that was when the world stopped and we went into lockdown. Of course. So it was already getting pretty scary. Um, I mean, you were in Melbourne at the time, so you know, like no one knew what was going on and, you know, like the no one knew anything about this virus and what if you were pregnant and it could you got COVID and, you know, would it affect the baby? And I know that my parents were quite concerned and at one point they were like, oh, should you be holding off and perhaps like just wait a few months just to see what happens until things settle down. Um, yeah. <laughs> didn't we all think that at the beginning? <laughs> we really did, didn't we? Um, It'll be all over within a few weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So um, it was, but yeah, when and then they brought in the elective surgery ban. So I was sort of chatting to my fertility specialist saying, like, what do you think? Should we be holding off? Like, and then she was like, you know, she didn't think that there was any need to hold off, but just wait for a minute because there's going to be announcements coming they had obviously been privy to what was going to be coming. Um, and, yeah, so then everything was sort of frozen for a little while um, for the elective surgery ban. So that was, I mean, that was stressful because 
you know, I was ready. And yeah. you sort of, you've and built it's so up. out of your control. Oh, and you didn't know at that point how long it was going to be. And every month that goes past, and your period comes and you think like, that's a wasted egg. That's a wasted opportunity. <laughs> and, you know, like in the scheme of things, it's probably like one or two, but it, at the same time, it is that wasted. Once you become hyper aware of your fertility in the future, you suddenly I more conscious about I have you. known so much more about my fertility so much earlier. But um, yeah, so once um once then we were allowed back it was still kind of hectic because we had that you had to get travel papers to be allowed to travel in like more than five kilometers from your house and so and no one was allowed to come to any appointments so it was all very much solo but with that said a silver lining for me and this is it's going to sound quite selfish um but having the other women in the waiting room when you're there waiting for your transfer or you're waiting for your are you um your egg collection at the hospital knowing that like they didn't have anyone with them either which was awful we all deserve to have someone with us but none of us did and i think that sort of made me feel less solo if that makes sense because yeah. We were all solo, so I wasn't any different to any of the other women that were in the waiting room at that time. And I think there was a little bit of solidarity in there of the sisterhood, you know, like it didn't sort of matter where you were coming from or the background or the, you know, what you're going home to. It was you were all there for exactly the same reason. So yeah, that and was nobody would you wouldn't know if any of them had husbands there or they're all solo. So exactly, exactly. Yeah. So that was kind of a nice silver lining for me. I'm sure it wasn't like that for the poor woman whose husband wasn't allowed. Um, but, yeah, so, um, but I think lockdown and stuff just threw a huge spanner in the works for everything. But, I mean, it was what it was and, you know, we we survived and told the story. So um, Stories for our children when they're older. Oh, my gosh, exactly, exactly. Um, so I finally did my first IVF round in June of 2020 um, and, um, I got only got two eggs, which I remember being really shocked. I remember thinking I was going to get like 10, even yeah. though I didn't have heaps of follicles. I just think that that was what people got. People got larger number of eggs. Um, had they given you any expectation? Like were you even having the scans to see how many follicles you had before pickup or not really? Yeah, we were. Um, and I think there was one of my ovaries wasn't particularly good team player and um, there was some follicles, but there wasn't eggs in the follicles yeah. um, or they were immature follicles. Um, so I think my fertility specialist was expecting about five. So I was going and going, she said five, I'll probably get like eight. That you means know? ten. <laughs> Exactly. And um, and then I'll make all these embryos. I'll only have to do it once. And, you know, there'll be some in the freezer for later. It'll be great. Um, no. So I got two eggs. They both fertilized, but unfortunately got the phone call the day I was going to go for the transfer to say that they hadn't made it to day five. Right. So that was probably the, that, that was a big day of, yeah, like that really knocked me more so than anything else because you know, like those eggs had fertilized. They were little embryos. And yeah, so I had already obviously already had them. They in my mind, I'd gone forward 20 years already, you know. So <laughs> and that, that five days is a long time to sort of picture and imagine and hope. And yeah. So um, but yeah, just straight back on the horse. And I did another round in July um and got five eggs that time. So, you know, things were on the up. Yeah. Um and got um unfortunately that transfer didn't work so only one of the um one of I only had one embryo make it to day five um and and then that didn't stick so um and they also discovered in that round that I had a cyst on my ovary so they drained that while they were in there so like collecting the eggs so that was probably why one of my ovaries wasn't sort of playing the game a little bit but um yeah and then we just went straight into August. In hindsight, I probably shouldn't have done them back to back to back to back, but at that point it was easier to keep going than it was to stop. Like you say, so, you were on the train. Yeah, I was on the train and I was just like, let's just move it forward. And I sort of said to the doctor, like, if you're happy, then I'm happy to go forward. So, And she was like, well, there's no reason for you to stop and have a break. Like, we can keep going. So, um, yeah, so I did August was my third um 
IVF cycle. So, and I actually, that was the best one I will, in terms of, I got five eggs and I got um, a fresh transfer and an embryo in the freezer. Um, The fresh transfer didn't take, um, but I was like, it's okay. I've got the embryo in the freezer. Um, And then was all set for the frozen embryo transfer, um, which actually fell on my birthday. So I'm like, this is it. It's It's a sign. It's a sign. It was not a sign. I got the phone call the morning off to say, don't come in. It hasn't survived the thaw. And so that was just, yeah, that was, that was a hard, a hard one. That's a pretty crappy birthday present. (laughs) It's a really, really crappy birthday present. Um, But yeah, then, so went into, we had a bit of a different plan. It was actually, I had a couple of weeks off after that because that was at the beginning of October. Um, And it wasn't until the end of October where my doctor wanted me to start what they call a flare cycle. And it takes about six weeks. So I actually had a couple of weeks off and, um, and I did this new cycle. Um, and the, the cycle took a little bit longer just because they, they wanted to control my cycle, like the period and ovulation and stuff a little bit more, I guess, like closely, yeah. um, which I know they were already doing it very closely, but it was just a different, sometimes they call it a downreg cycle. And it's just more medication um, and it just is a longer sort of cycle. Um, And during that cycle, they actually found that I had a few little polyps, which I had to get tested. So that turned into a freeze cycle. So I wasn't able to do any transfers if we got any embryos. So we did the cycle and then when they did the egg collection, they also did a um, like a hysteroscopy, almost like a DNC to sort of, remove the polyps, clear me out, yeah. um, send them away for testing and all of that. Thankfully, everything was fine. Um, and But I couldn't have a transfer that cycle. So, um, but that, and then I, so I got to have another little bit of a break and did a frozen embryo cycle in the December, um, which unfortunately didn't take. And the second embryo that I had from there, that didn't survive the thaw. So we sort of were back to 12 months in and have got, all of that, and there's nothing in the freezer. There's nothing to show for it. You know, there's no. And I was convinced I was having a baby for Christmas. Like I was going to be having a newborn at Christmas, and it was going to be the greatest thing ever. Um, but I had instead had to choose a new donor because the donor program you were only allowed to have um, a donor for four cycles before they sort of said maybe you're incompatible put it back into the system for somebody else to use and select a new one. And so um, did that. And so this is donor number three now. And then um, everything was fine in terms of, you know, like spoke to my fertility specialist and she said like, you know, you're good to go whenever you're ready. If you need to take time, take time, but I'm happy for you to go for it, you know, whenever you're ready. So in the January of 2021, I did my fifth cycle. And I remember when I woke up from the egg collection, um, they only got two eggs and I was devastated. And I remember just thinking, you know, when you try to put on a brave face, but clearly you're not as brave as what you think you are because this beautiful nurse held my hand and she said, Sarah, it only takes one. You just need one. And I was like, okay. And so I then got, they both fertilized, got to day five, went in for a fresh transfer one of them didn't make it to day five and the other one is now sleeping in the room next to me so finally after all of that um little Noah he took he was the little embryo that could so the nurse was right it did only just take one so five rounds of IVF two rounds of IUI and three donors yep and you got him and you got him wow yeah so And yeah, he's 15 months old now and a little pocket, well, not a pocket rocket. He's a giant, a giant rocket. So yeah. So I guess when you look back now at that journey, is there anything you think you'd do differently knowing what you know now? Um, I would have started earlier. Yeah. Which I know is what every woman on your podcast says, that they would have started earlier. But I probably instead of say but then at the time I thought I was doing the right thing you know giving myself every opportunity to do things I guess like the traditional way yeah um and yeah but I do wish that I had have started earlier or even that if I'd done all the the research earlier and then would bang turn 36 go you know like 
perhaps being a bit younger, maybe the my egg quality or count might have been better or I don't know, there was, you know, I've got to the point now where I'm 40 and it's sort of the thought of having a second is probably not going to happen because I haven't got anything in the freezer and I am that little bit older. So, you know, having, if I had started earlier, perhaps things would be different. But then if I had started earlier, I wouldn't have Noah. I'd have maybe a different baby and I can't fathom life without him. So I think everything probably does happen for a reason. Yeah. Um, but yeah, other than maybe I wouldn't have done everything so back to back to back to back. I maybe would have taken a breath and sort of looked after myself a little bit more rather than just being so fixated on this is what I'm going to do. Um, and I probably would have maybe shared the journey a little bit more with people. So my family knew what I was doing and close friends knew what I was doing, but I, they didn't know the details. So in the beginning, I had sort of told more people, you know, like, oh, I'm going for my transfer today, or this is the date I'm getting the blood test. And as time went on and it was one failed cycle after another, they they were so disappointed for me. But when I told them I didn't, all I got was their disappointment. You felt like you and, let them down by not being successful yeah. almost. And I know, I know that I wasn't letting them down. And I know that they were devastated for me. But all I felt was the disappointment and I sort of, I guess my mindset wasn't in the place of my brain said they're disappointed for me, but my heart said they're so disappointed I've let them down. So I sort of told less and less and less and less people. And so then the people that like were around me and my colleagues at work and, you know, we were we were in lockdown a lot of the time, which was helpful. Um, but they, you know, they were worried about me. They knew that something was up because, you know, I was absent. I had appointments. I wasn't myself, you know, like I was taking all of these drugs. So my hormones, you know, like, and you're a little bit, you're bloated and you're a little bit, you know, so, um, and I remember telling um, my sort of line manager, so I'm, I'm a primary school teacher and I told my coordinator who I worked with sort of about halfway through and sort of said, look, just wanted to let you know that this is what I'm I'm doing because, you know, it's just, it's important that I think that you know. And he went, oh, thank God. And I went, what do you mean? <laughs> I thought something really awful was going on, like that maybe you were sick or something, you know, like, thank God it's just that. Like, yeah. and so I think, yeah, maybe being, but still protecting myself, but being more open about it from earlier on rather than sort of mentioning it and sort of say, oh, I think I'm going to do this or I am going to do this and then not saying anything else, you know, being. Yeah, I often describe it as a bit of a vortex when you're going through all that, that treatment and all those negatives and everything else. And I don't think you can see yourself how much you're changing and how much it's taking over your life. Yeah. Like I look back now from when the first time I did it and I was the most bitter and, I don't know, self-involved person like I couldn't see what was going on around me anymore because all I was doing is I was on that train and I was just going to get pregnant and I had very same similar mindset to what you've got and I'd already planned out when I was going to have the newborn and what was going to be happening at Christmas and yeah. when you get the negatives it's just so much harder to take yeah you just don't see it because you're on it and I think with doing it solo as well I think because you do go so I live on my own um you come home to an empty house so you kind of you're used to sort of dealing with things yourself um, and I guess like if you're in a couple, I guess you're, the other person is also devastated with you. Because it's easy to go into that vortex and not let anyone in mm. thinking that you're protecting yourself. But I think that knowing my friends and also just knowing me, if it was one of my friends going through that, I would have loved to have known so I could help or to drop off a lasagna or to... So I didn't give a lot of my friends that opportunity and I kind of wish that I had. I'm not great at asking for help or admitting that I need help. That's uh, quite a common problem with most solo moms, <laughs> I would say. So, personality type that generally goes through this journey. Yeah. And I think also, I don't know, you sort of think like I should be able to handle this. I've made the decision to do this, so I should be able to do this. And I guess there's a little bit of maybe a little bit of shame if you couldn't cope with it all. But I think that was part of like the counselling. You sort of have to go through the grieving process of the life that you thought you were going to have before you could accept the life that you are going to have type of thing. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah, I just wish that perhaps I had have allowed myself to be helped a little bit more rather than just go to this vortex by myself because everyone was amazing and I've not been met with any negativity the entire 
time, you know, from the the planning to the going through it to being pregnant to having Noah. Everyone's just been so amazing and strangers on the, you know, that you meet at the cafe that might you strike up conversation or, you know, like medical professionals, friends, colleagues, everyone's been so great and, um, and positive and they think it's amazing. They think it's wonderful. It's interesting that so many of us have this perception that people are going to have a negative reaction to us when we start the journey, but nobody ever does. So I don't know why we've all got that idea that that's what's going to happen. Weird. I don't know. Maybe like we've, we've, we're taught so early on that, you know, don't fall pregnant accidentally or you have to have a partner to fall pregnant. Mm. I don't know. Like it's that whole like single Ooh. mother. Yeah. But I don't know. I like to refer to myself as a solo mum, not a single mum, because I want people to know that it's by choice. It's, you know, this is very much planned. This is, yeah. Yeah, to me, single implies that there was once a couple and now you're single. So there is a father somewhere, which in our situation there isn't. No, exactly. So which I actually think is our situation is much easier and much more complete. Oh, much easier. I have a lot of uh, recently divorced friends very jealous of my situation. Oh, really? (laughs) With all the dramas they're going through with court and custody. and can't even imagine. Yeah. Ours are so clean and easy. We make all the decisions. And if we were to meet someone in the future... There's no baggage. Mm. You know, we have got, you know, this beautiful little person and us, we're a little team and there's no baggage. It's great. Yeah. And hopefully we're going to be attracting a pretty amazing partner into that life because they they would have to be pretty special to be allowed in, to be fair. Oh, look. And for us to find time for because you don't get much by yourself. I'm not sacrificing it to go on just some random date that I've met on the internet. It has to be something amazing. Of nothing worse. Yeah. Nothing worse. No, it's um they'd have to be pretty amazing. And I imagine I think it would almost have to be like a organic meeting mm-hmm. at this point. I don't think I mean maybe I'll change my mind in a few years' time, who knows? But I think at this point I can't see myself jumping back online and looking for the person. But if I met someone, that would be a different situation. Yeah, I'm definitely the same mindset as you. And I think I'm so set in my ways as well that I'd never want to leave my suburb or anything else. So they organically be in it that I'm that's how I'm meeting them because I'm not moving. Yeah. Oh, 100%. And if they could maybe buy the house next door so I actually don't have to move and I can still like sleep in my own bed. Is is it Helena Bonham Carter and her, I can't remember her husband's name, had two houses next to each other with adjoining doors? Dream situation. I was talking about that with someone the other day and I was like, that's what you need. Because we're so set in our ways and we can just spend some time together and then, yeah, have our own beds. and Perfect. Mm. Sounds like, yeah, the perfect situation. So Noah is how old now? He's 15 months. 15 months. Have you started thinking about how you'll talk to him about the fact that he's donor conceived? Um, I'm or I already talked to him about it. So, and I think that's more one of the, some of the advice that I got given really early on before I, um, had even had Noah was so when I was pregnant was that it's much easier to sort of have those conversations with a newborn and then you can get all the awkwardness out of the way and you can sort of practice on them and um, so I was trying to do that when he was teeny tiny but I'm sort of conscious now he's getting a bit bigger and I know that he's understanding more of what I'm saying I'm just trying to sort of put it into our day-to-day um conversations so we might talk about how he's got beautiful brown eyes I've got blue eyes and everyone in our family's got blue eyes um except my little niece because my sister-in-law's got brown eyes and so we can say like you're you've got beautiful brown eyes just like your cousin Harper and you know your donor had brown eyes so that's you know things like that or that someone else you know about him being tall or your donor was tall yeah Um, and things like that. And I think just trying to make it more natural for me to talk about as well. Um, and, yeah, we went to a solo mum event, actually, like a meetup on the weekend, um, our first one, and I was telling him, you know, we're going to go and meet lots of families that are like ours that have just got a mum and, you know, the kids are going to have a donor as well. And, you know, he had no idea. He played in the tan bark while we were there. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, but hopefully if we get to more of those events, you know, like it's that type of thing that we can it won't be a conversation that we have. It's just a thing that is. Yeah. 
It's such an amazing community, isn't it? I've been on one camping trip. I say camping trip. It was at a holiday park. To me, that's camping. Um, And there was, I think, (laughs) 30 mums and their children. Yeah, And it's like no other families do these massive holidays like that, but they're going to see all of these other families that are exactly the same as ours and just think that that's pretty normal. Yeah, the community is like I wish that I had have gotten involved in it earlier. So I'm in the Facebook group and, um, you know, would occasionally comment, but I've only been in that Facebook group for about six months, sort of being that sort of person that sort of lingers and watches and reads it all fascinated and excited. And um, yeah, and but my intention for this year is to really build our village. So to really make the effort to, yeah, get to the the catch-ups and the play dates and the, um, you know, like you said, the camping trips. There's so many events that are, you know, around and everyone was so welcoming when I went to this catch-up on the weekend. And I sort of feel if I showed up to a camping trip that I'd be welcomed with open arms and Noah would be welcomed and, you know, it would be amazing. Yeah, my theory is the more you go, then the more similar people you're going to see and they'll start building little friendships as well. So when you're going to the next camping trip, you'll be like, oh, you're going with Sally and Molly and whoever else and yeah, yeah. they look forward to it. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah, that's the plan. So this is this year we're building the village, setting those foundations. But Sounds hopefully like a- that with that conversation as well, that ongoing conversation about, our family and you know he's the, the fact that he's got a donor and not a dad and have you thought about making contact with the donor or how you're going to manage that my the donor so I used um so it's obviously like clinic recruited mm-hmm. um, sperm from the donor program um and um on one of the things I did look for so I said medical history was the main thing that I was looking for when I selected a donor but I also wanted to make sure that the donor would be up for contact if any children, you know, would like that. Um, I sort of haven't thought about how I'll feel if Noah suddenly says that he wants to contact the donor. I'll just go with it and, you know, follow his lead because it, that's his story. That's not mine. Like, um, but yeah, I think that if the time comes where that's the case and if he wants to meet the donor, then I'll definitely, you know, get in contact with Vata and follow all the rules and, um, I think there's some counselling that goes along with that as well. So, um, yeah, and hopefully that would be a really positive experience for us. But And if he doesn't want to meet the donor, um, then that's fine too. But And we'll get that information once he turns 18. If he wants it, he can yeah. automatically get that information. So, um, yeah, part of me doesn't, part of me sort of thinks that perhaps if he doesn't want to meet the donor, then like, that would almost be a good thing that I've sort of, he doesn't feel that he's lacking anything, but then mm-hmm. also like, I think if I was in his situation, I would definitely want to meet the donor. I'm too curious and I kind of want him to have that curiosity. And also I would love to meet the donor to be able to sort of thank him. Yeah. Just because, I mean, what an amazing gift. Really is. Yeah. Amazing. So, um, but yeah, I don't know. Part of me hopes that he doesn't want to, but then if he does, then we go with it. And have you thought about donor siblings at all and what you'll do in that situation? So oh, that one I have thought a bit more about. Um, I mentioned earlier about the idea of if I was going to have a second child, you know, being my age and um, not having any embryos in the in the freezer would be very difficult. So at this point, it will just be Noah and I, Yeah, you know, which isn't a bad thing, but part of my heart would love to have more, but I mean, you know, never say never, but at this point it's not going to happen. Um, so I think donor siblings, that could sort of be great for Noah going forward. If, you know, I always think I oh, would be nice if he had a sibling, you know, so there's someone else out there with him, you know, even if he's not close to his sibling, then that's, a, you know, there's some, he's not alone in the world, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so donor siblings, that's like another avenue that if he's an only child, which it looks like he will be, you know, like that could be a really nice connection that we could build. But I think that at this stage, I'll probably wait to follow his lead. But on the other hand, I also read about people saying that um, the earlier those connections are made, often it's better for the children. I think I read somewhere. Um, So, and also I think my curiosity might get the better of me. Um, I've been thinking about contacting the clinic because you can ask for what's called a family audit. And just to find out if any other children have been born as a result of your donor. So 
I'd be interested. I wouldn't be surprised if I sort of asked, you know, in the next little while, ask my clinic for that information and then perhaps how I feel when I've got that in my hand will sort of be, you know, an indication of what next steps we'll take. But, yeah. We did that, I rung just before Lexi turned two. Yeah. And I was quite nervous just even making the phone call because it's such a a weird concept and I'm an only child so I have no concept of what having siblings would be like or what should potentially be missing out on. So, yeah, I felt really weird going into it and then afterwards just kind of felt quite at peace knowing what the situation was. Yeah. So Knowledge is power, isn't it? Yeah. Um, And I know that she was the first, there was another one and someone pregnant, but all of his allocations had been allocated. Okay. So I figure... I do need to get on to doing the VADA paperwork because I have intentions to do that. So then it's like, well, you know, if it's meant to be and someone else matches, then we can do stuff about it. But if not, it's not for me not doing my part. Um, Yeah, that's true. You can look her in the eye later on and say that you tried your best. We're on there. And I've had a few conversations with a few people and they're like, I think if you're a solo mum by choice, you're more likely to be more proactive with it. But whereas if all of his other allocations have gone to couples, they're probably not going to be because they will be telling the child a lot later that they're donor conceived, especially if it's like a, a heterosexual couple. Yeah. So, yeah, I I'll do the paperwork, but I'll probably ring it. each year as well, maybe just before a birthday and just see what the situation is just so I know. Yeah, yeah. I guess like you kind of forget when you're in it that that's not just solo women doing mm. this. You sort of think solo women, same-sex couples, you kind of forget that, there's also, yeah, heterosexual couples using the donor program as well. Um, but, yeah, you're right. That's, it would be, they probably would be less likely to want yeah. to be on that. And, yeah, I think it could be quite disappointing, I think, if you sort of got through the counselling and finally got your name on that voluntary, um, the registry, to and then to find that no one else was there. Like, I think it would almost be a bit of a, oh, okay, like a bit of an anticlimax. But Yeah, I'm not sure if there's counselling for the donor siblings or if that's just for the donor. Oh, I'm not sure. I haven't got that far yet. I just... Yeah, I think my understanding is if you do try to do the donor one, if the donor's open to it, then you have counselling, both of you, before you meet. Oh, I see. And, it, yeah, I think you can just go on the register and then when they match you, then they'll tell you that someone has matched and then Okay. I guess they probably organise it then, I think. I'll yeah. tell you after I've been through it. Maybe I'll yeah, you go through going it, through it. Let me know. <laughs> this is the beauty of the uh, community as well is there's always someone that's taken that journey before you and – everyone's happy to share their information and their story. Yeah. And the good thing with Victoria is that we do have such a strong regulatory body on it and we have VATA and all that sort of thing that other states don't have. So, Yeah, I'm very grateful for that. I think that that sort of gave my, um, I know it gave my parents a lot of peace of mind knowing how regulated it was mm. um, and how, yeah, there was, there was, I guess, safety in that. You know, and like coming in, you get your birth certificate. I'm the only parent on the birth certificate. There's actually no mention on the birth certificate at all about being donor conceived. I thought there was going to be like a little on a second page, like a little asterisk and, you know, to apply for more information, but there's nothing. It's literally just me and Noah. And, but it's, it's, yeah, I like that it's very immaculate conception. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. But, um, so how were your parents when you told them? That this is what you're thinking about doing they were great so mum knew that I was thinking about it um and when I got the results of my AMH test I actually went over to the to their place dad wasn't home um and mum knew that I'd been going to the doctor to get the results and how did you go and I burst into tears and said this is what the situation is and I you know I can't not have children and this is, you know, like, what am I, I'm going to do it by myself. And I was really worried about, you know, like, but what about dad? And I always remember <laughs> mum said, I'll deal with dad. And I was, thanks mum. So I just <laughs> didn't have to have that conversation with dad who, which was actually a bit of a disservice to him because he's been amazing. He, so during um, like having to go and get like the egg collections and stuff during lockdown, he was the one coming into the city because I obviously wasn't allowed to drive myself home and it's about an hour from us to get to the clinic. Um, and mum wasn't comfortable sort of driving through like busy city traffic and, you know, unfamiliar places and stuff. So he was the one that would drive me and sort of wait, going for walks around the gardens and waiting for me and driving me home. And, you know, he's a, yeah, so he's been amazing. So he's quite a conservative man um, and very traditional, um, I would say. He's sort of, he's was in the Navy for 20 years and, sort of very old school about things. Sounds like my dad, yeah. And, yeah, and which is, you know, is a 
there's a lot of positives in that, but there's also, you know, those sort of old fashioned values, I suppose. Um, and so I was very nervous about how he would take it, but he was great. And I think so I remember reading or someone told me that it doesn't once, once there's a baby, no one cares about how that baby came. And it's so true. I mean, everyone's very proud of how Noah came to be. And I think my parents, especially sort of, they're very, very proud of, of Noah. And I think, you know, of me and of like the journey that we took, um, and, like mum will tell random people like that she, you know, like their next door neighbours she was saying about, you know, told the story. Like she's really like bragging about it, which is really nice. Um, but, yeah, they once as a baby, no one cares and it's true. Like people just see Noah for Noah and, yes, he has an amazing backstory, but he's an amazing little human like on his own without that backstory. Yeah. So. But no. And so how are you finding life as a mum? Is it what you thought it was going to be? Oh, it's better. It's better. It's um it's yeah, it's just the best. So we've we've had our we've had a few challenges. So Noah um in the very beginning where we spent a few days in special care, he had a few issues at birth where, you know, we had a few scary days, but um we sort of got through that. And then when he was six weeks old, um we making a really weird noise when he was crying so we ended up at the ENT um to sort of have that investigated and um he actually had surgery at nine weeks old um which it it wasn't big surgery but it was still you know surgery scary when your baby's going under at any time but nine weeks old there's yeah and during like all the restrictions and stuff so I was by myself in the hospital and yes that was a lot but I kind of think like we get through that and I did that by myself and I think sometimes I don't give myself enough credit like I think I never knew that I could be that strong or that brave or that resilient but when you've you've got to be you know you baby depends on you so um it's actually been I think yeah we got through all of that and I think because we've gone through all of that and obviously the backstory to get to him I don't know just every day like we might not do anything but it's like the best day ever or we have the worst day, but it's still a great day because something good has happened or he's made me laugh or he looks at you with those big eyes and smiles or, I don't know, like the little hand reaches out and sort of grasps onto your shirt and it's just the best. You're just, their most favourite person. Oh, and I've never been anybody's fav- like most favourite person. Like, mm. So I'm, I'm one of three, so I like to think that I'm the favourite, but, you know, Probably not. Like we're probably equally favourite. I've never been anyone's most, most favourite person. So this is, it's it's the best. So no, I just, anyone who's thinking about it, I say go for it. 100%, you will not regret it. Are there any tips you think you'd give anyone who's maybe just about to have their baby on what you found really useful or what you would have done differently um, probably in those early days? Um. Probably cook as many meals as you can and get them in the freezer. <laughs> um, little things. I mean, I was pretty organised, but Noah came two weeks early, so it was a lot that I hadn't done. Um, so, yeah, I think making sure that you're getting as much in the freezer as you can and as much organised in your house as you can. Yeah. So like, you know, fresh bedding on your bed and keep up to date as much as you can with your washing so you're not coming home to you know, all of that sort of stuff. But um, just let people help you because I had a lot of people saying, if there's anything that you need, just let me know. And, of course, I didn't let them know because partly I didn't know what I needed until the very moment that I needed that thing appeared. But I just wish that I, if someone, you know, I maybe had said, oh, actually, you know, if, you know, I don't know, I haven't, if if you're making that lasagna that's so delicious, would you be able to make an extra one for me and drop it around? Or yeah. I don't know, just let people help you, I guess, would be the main tip. Because people want to. It makes people feel good. Yeah. So. Um, Did you have quite a lot of support when you first went home? Yeah, my mum stayed with me for the first two weeks. Yeah. Um, which was really nice. Um, And they just, my parents live about five minutes from me. So that's super handy. Yeah, so lots of support and everyone was excited. You know, there was lots of, I mean, we were still in lockdown, so that was hard because we couldn't, I couldn't have anyone come around and, you know, like visit and meet and all of that sort of stuff. Um, 
But then also that was almost a blessing because at that point we were all so scared of germs and disease and this and that. And I had this precious little newborn that, you know, it was, yeah, that was, I think it took a lot for us to finally be brave enough to venture out once we were allowed. Um, but yeah, so, um, I think everyone was very supportive and wanted to help, but just there was, it was tricky. So I didn't know what you needed. Yeah. And also COVID just didn't help just, yeah. And are you back at work now? Um, so I did a couple of days as a CRT last term at school. Um, and just, and Noah was with my mum and dad for that time. Yeah. Um, and I think this year I'm just going to do the same. So just some casual work um, around my area um, and have mum Noah with mum and dad um, on those days. Yeah. Um, so probably just one day a week. Um, and, yeah, I'm just enjoying it so much. And I, I was lucky enough in that I had done quite a bit of saving leading up to going through the journey. And then obviously two years of lockdown um, in Melbourne enabled me to save because I was lucky enough to be still working during that time. So, you know, earning a salary and then not being able to do anything with that salary except pay for IVF. Um, it was, yeah, sort of was a bit of enforced savings as well. So, um, and we're also pretty lucky that there is some Centrelink support, which I actually didn't know about until after Noah was born um, and was applying for, you know, you apply for the Medicare card and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and I knew that I had, there was something about the family tax benefit with the Medicare forms that I had to fill out. And when I was speaking to someone from Services Australia on the phone, she actually said to me, have a look at this um, parenting payment because you might be eligible as a, you know, as a solo parent. And if she had have said that, this random lady on the phone, I wouldn't have known about the parenting single parent payment and that's been a godsend because, you know, that sort of covers when you're not working at all. Um, when my maternity leave and stuff ran out, um, I was just on that. And, it, you know, yeah, you live very simply, but it covers you um, and sort of gets you by. So that's been a godsend and has allowed me to have a few more options when it comes to returning to work. Yeah. So I guess if anyone who is considering the journey and is sort of sort of getting all their ducks in a row, that's something for them to because I think a lot of people don't know about the support that's out there. Um, and especially if you've never needed um, to sort of rely on like Centrelink services before, um, you know, like there's quite a bit out there. So you really look into it. So as soon as baby's born, you get onto it. Parenting payment, it's, um, yeah, that's been a godsend. So, so yeah, um, probably do one day a week this year, you know, casually and, We'll go from there. That's great. You've got your parents to be able to look after Noah. Yeah. And if they can't, then I just won't work that week and that's fine. And then maybe maybe do two days another week or yeah. so I'm, I'm a teacher and there's a lot of work out there. So um, I'm going to use this teacher shortage to my advantage. You have another year off, Lucky. Yeah. Oh, so lucky. And I always think as well, if he's going to be an only child, then I want to don't want to miss anything. I want to make the most of it. And and I'm enjoying it as well. So I know that um you know, talking to other parents and stuff, a lot of them really love going to work and, ha you know, having that time and sort of that professional them and their that separation. Um, and I might get to that point that I, I need that, but at the moment I'm quite happy to be consumed by all of this. And, yeah, yeah. and I think maybe because my job involves looking after other people's children, I, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to, like, leave my child to go and look at other people. I don't know, like, just, yeah. I love my job, but I, I like my job, but I love being a mum. So I'm going to try and milk it for as long as I can and stay home for as long as I can. And would you say you're 100% not doing another round or you're still, there's a chance? Let's go with 95% not doing another round. Yeah. But never say never. Yes, anyway. Ask me again in October when I turn 41. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. Is there anything that you'd like to leave anyone with who's listening to this and just considering whether this is the right path for them or not? Um, just that you are stronger than you know, that you're braver than you know, and that you can do it. If it's something that you want and it's something that you think that you can't, like, I guess, live without, then go for it. You know, no regrets. You've got to give it a go and 
it's hands down the greatest adventure I've ever gone on and it's the best thing that's ever, ever happened to me. So being Noah's mum, hands down, like made my life. So just go for it. That's a pretty awesome way to end. So thank you so much, Sarah, for sharing your story. Thank you for having me. I'm Alicia and this is the No Need for Prince Charming podcast, bringing you stories of Australian solo mums who created their own happy ending. If you like what you heard, please follow or subscribe to make sure you don't miss out on future episodes and leave a like, a review or share with your friends to help others find it easier. Bye for now.